Founders, welcome back to the Zero to 5,000 podcast, where we obsess over the convergence of human potential and business results. Today, our hosts, Drew McClure and Jordan Mitchell, have another insightful conversation for you. So let's jump right in. Okay, founders, welcome back to the podcast. Today, we are joined by Sam Frank, co-founder and partner of 412. 412 is a roofing and restoration construction firm dedicated to improve the city of Baltimore and make roofing easier. 412 started with the purchase of a single vacant home that evolved to become intertwined with the city of Baltimore. Sam is a graduate of Northwestern University with a degree in economics. His passion for making positive, lasting impacts for his community has been magnified by the results of 412. Before 412 was around, Sam spent his early career in finance and then moved back into the Baltimore area, entering the construction realm as a project manager. Sam has been the cornerstone for 412, working as the inside guy for his roofing and general contracting company. He has a range of experience in managing relationships, sales, marketing, estimating, finance, and even construction management. So far, uh, 412 has received recognition from Inc. Magazine's list of 5,000 fastest growing private companies in the U.S., ranking number 122 on its 2020 list. The company has also been recognized by the Baltimore Business Journal and their Fast 50 Awards 2020 as the number one fastest growing company in Baltimore. And today, we are so excited to have Sam on the podcast, and today happens to also be his birthday. So, Sam, thank you for being here, and happy birthday, my man. All right. Thank you, Drew. I like how you improvise with that when I tell you two minutes before we start. <laughs> <laughs> hey, you can't you can't be on the podcast on your birthday and not get a shout out, right? I know. I'm feeling it. I, I'm feeling the well wishes. Good. You should. Happy 31st, man. That is that's an exciting year. You're in the, the first year of an important decade of your life and uh, crushing it by all accounts. So I'm happy to spend your birthday, at least part of it, with you here. Also, I appreciate that intro. Great research in terms of all the copy. You picked all the best pieces of copy that we put out. So I <laughs> might need a transcript of that to give to our, uh, our marketing department. I get you, man. Shout out to our team who does all the research and puts it together, man. Uh, all right, let's ask you this. Same question I ask every founder. What were the series of events that led you to what you're doing today? Yeah, so, I mean, I'm sure like any founder, you know, it's a circuitous path. But sure. actually, the, the company is named after the first townhome that we renovated in Baltimore City, me and my business partner. So the address of that townhome was 412 East Landvale. Uh, a lot of people think it's a roof pitch because now we do roofing. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll count that as well. Yeah. Um, but basically, I, I really wanted to have a career that I was passionate about. Um, and I, I did a finance job out of college. And uh, I, I realized I did about two and a half years doing that. And I realized that it wasn't something that, that I wanted to do for, for work for the rest of my life. And so I started researching a bunch of different industries. And I also got an inkling to want to move back to Baltimore and be closer to my family. And basically construction and real estate just kind of showed itself as a path that I thought I could be really passionate about in terms of, you know, building a career. So I moved back here and we started flipping houses. I met my business partner who's a really interesting guy. He's kind of the yin to my yang. Uh, and we have a really good relationship. He works in the field and I work in the office. And we started renovating townhomes. And, and really, we recognized a problem in Baltimore 
which was that there's a ton of row homes and townhomes in the city. And you have a lot of young people moving back into the city and a lot of people that are passionate about city living here and want to make the city a great place to be. And people are buying nice properties that have uh, flat roofs uh, in the city. And so there's a huge stock of flat roofs and flat roofing is particularly a discipline that hasn't been flushed out uh, where there's a bunch of great companies that do it. So it was a really good opportunity for us. And we saw an issue for us, for ourselves, when we were doing our townhome renovations to find a good flat roof contractor. And so we just started, you know, plugging away at, at advertising and saying, hey, we're in business. And right out of the gate, you know, there was a huge demand. And what we were bringing to the market was obviously resonating with people in the community. And then since then, we've really just continued to build upon it and, uh, and started to get some recognition, which has been really neat. Heck yeah. So the first off, I love that the name 412 came from your first, your first renovation. I had to do a double take when I was doing our research on you and make sure it didn't say 420. That's a, that's a, that's a different business idea. Yeah, exactly. That'll be, that'll be a subsidiary. That's right. That's right. Uh, we are high while we make your high, high rise <laughs> building. Yeah. Um, what about construction and real estate do you think grabbed your attention when you were kind of searching for your professional path? Well, so, uh, so my first job being in finance, I, I think a lot of things that have developed in my business career, uh, I attribute to the training that I had doing that. So, you know, learning uh, financial statements, like the three, you know, your income statement, your balance sheet, your cash flow. So learning accounting and how to do that. Also working in like a high stress work environment where people have deadlines that need to be produced accurately and quickly and just working with people that are really driven in business and learning how to project manage jobs. So I learned a lot doing that that I think has been very transferable to what I do now in my in our workplace. Um, but I, I also was stuck behind an Excel spreadsheet and PowerPoint a lot. And what I wanted to do was something that was more tangible. What I really like about our business now is that I live five minutes uh, driving from my workplace. Um, I, I get to work on a lot of people's properties that are in the community. I mean, there's a bar that I love to go to for live shows. We just put a roof on their property, which has been really neat because I've been going cool. for 10 years. Um, and there's all kinds of other things things like that. Like, you know, I just put a name, I just put a roof on my neighbor's house and we can drive around the city and be like, we've been involved in that project and that project and the small business nature of it has been really neat. And then additionally, just doing something that's tangible, seeing these projects come to life and, and having a product that we sell that's very like understandable. Like it's something that I, I can feel. Wow. I love that. You mentioned earlier that one of the things that you had to learn in your career was an ability to thrive in a high stress environment. What would you say are some keys if someone finds himself in a business like that, where it's a high stress environment, there's a lot of deadlines or pressure. Uh, how would you help somebody learn to thrive in that kind of environment? So I think one of the, so it's interesting because one of my resolutions today and uh, for the rest of the coming months, something that I'm trying to work on as a boss is uh, my fiance told me, she said, there's never a good reason to yell. And so that's something that I'm trying to work on, you know, is like being a boss, trying to get the troops rallied and working towards goals. 
is just, you know, like there's, there's no point. It, it only creates negative externalities to yell at people. And so I think that one of the things in my first job is that a lot of people yelling at you. It's kind of a culture of that. And I think that now that I'm getting a shot at building our own business or we can build yeah. our own culture is like, you know, if, if we can build something around that philosophy, then I think it creates a great place to come to work, uh, which creates retention, creates building upon the culture of the business where people feel like a family. And all those things, I think, outweigh tremendously, you know, putting the pressure on, on people. So yeah. I think one of, those, one of those things, learning from superiors and maybe what to do, what not to do. Uh, so that's, that's like a relevant thing that I'm thinking about right now. Yeah. Why do you, why is that a timely thing for you? Cause I think that th this has been the most challenging personal growth journey, uh, building this business, uh, and learning, uh, you know, people always say, you know, when you're, when you're working early and you're working your way up the ladder, you're doing a lot of, uh, tasks where you're, you're doing the task. And then as a business builds, you're doing a lot more managing of people. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and for me now, pretty much most of my job is managing, you know, different departments and managing people and doing sales. And so I think related to managing people, I recognize that, that it's just a, it's a winning proposition that I think uh, in terms of, you know, set work aside and think about what you're trying to build for yourself and life. And I think that it resonates with a lot of the things that I feel about life. Yeah. It's a, it's a cheap fuel source, isn't it? Like, it's not that yelling doesn't work. It works to a degree. The problem is it just runs out of fuel quickly. Like it stops being a motivator for somebody often as soon as the yelling's gone or the only motivation is to not get yelled at again. Right. And it's a cheap, it's like a cheap fuel source. I mean, have you ever seen, I can't believe I'm. Are you going to reference Parks and Rec? No, no. I was going to reference an episode of Parks and Rec where Ron Swanson and uh, Rob Lowe uh, both tried two different approaches where Ron beats him apart and then Rob Lowe kills him with kindness and their <laughs> management strategies. God. Okay. I wish I brought that up. That's even yeah, better, yeah. but there is, I cannot believe I'm drawing a blank on this. There is a Netflix series that follows, uh, teams in Juco. Do you know what I'm talking about? So okay. it's, like, it's like Juco okay. college football and Juco, um, college ba basketball. And it's where like, talented d1 players let's say they got in trouble or they didn't have the grades will go there for two years try to basically get back on track and then be able to transfer back out to it's, it's called last chance you that's what it is yeah i've seen the i've seen some of the trailers for it watch it bro it is it is so fun yet at the same time it makes me cringe at the leadership style often of these coaches who have often really great hearts and they genuinely want to help these kids but it's like the only tool in their tool belt is screaming all the time, like just constantly cussing at people, constantly like on their ass until they're almost breaking. And I'm like, you've got to find a better way to do this. Like this, yeah. is, I mean, really, it's hard to watch, but it's also a fascinating like case study of how do you get people to overcome their own self-sabotage? How do you get them to play for the team? All that kind of stuff. But it's what this reminds me of. Yeah. And I think that I, uh, you know, if you look at there, there's a lot of ways to lead where you can set, uh, you know, the bar for what you're expecting and make it very objective. 
without having to bream people, you know, about performance because yeah. basically it's it, it's black and white. It's like here's here's what we need. We tracked it, you know, we're getting it or we're not getting it. Yeah. This is kind of my expectation as a boss, you know. Yeah. I mean, one of the most fascinating parts was this guy was having trouble with his team being overly emotional. And he kept saying, you're getting too much in your emotions. Like in a game, they wouldn't be getting the calls they were getting and they would start losing their mind, get a technical foul or whatever. Yet I was watching in every practice, he was setting the example of getting too in his emotions. Like every time someone dogged a play or didn't do whatever, he would literally lose it. I'm like, you're setting the example of somebody that can't unemotionally kind of handle the situation you know what i mean 100 100 percent, and i think that's that's kind of the ultimate thing that it boils down to i think the legacy of what we're doing here and what we're building um you know like you, you can set the tone exactly positively or negatively and i think that the more that we go through people that worked here and we figure out who are like a players a, a big thing for us is that we've got a lot of really nice people that work here and, and I want to continue building on that and, and create an environment where people are really feel good coming to work. Super cool. You mentioned earlier uh, something I resonate with deeply and I know every founder on this podcast does as well, but it's the personal growth challenge when you are leading a business that there's the, the challenge of figuring out the X's and O's of the business, but then there's also the like, the demand is putting on you to evolve, to grow, to, to stretch with it. Can you give us a little insight? Like, what has that been like for you? What has been the, the most challenging part of, for you sitting in the seat that you're sitting in? Yeah. So I think it, well, it's interesting because in, in the same vein of talking about this conversation that I've had with my father and some other mentors is that, you know, some of the best leaders aren't going to be loved by everyone at the business, at the company. Correct. Yeah. yeah. And I think with that, you know, there, you, I do want to create an environment where people feel supported and we're figuring out the right way to manage, you know, the, the company and, the, and the, the people that are a part of the company. Um, but also we've, we've got the important responsibility of making sure that we're profitable, that we've got happy clients, that we're producing great work, that we're continuing to grow. And with that, you know, the, those are objectives that, that we need to continue striving for and getting better at each day. And, and, and that, that falls on the, the owners to make that happen. Yeah. So for you, if I'm hearing you right, are you saying the challenge is in the desire to be liked by everyone and when that might come in conflict with not being liked by a few people, but you had to hold a standard or something like that? Yeah, Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's actually directly, there's an analogy in how to win friends and influence people where yeah. they talk about that exactly. They're talking about some king back in the day who had some poster on his wall. And it says something to pretty much that exact tune is that his, his job is, is not to necessarily, or not to be liked by people, you know? Yeah. It's, yeah. It's something different. Yeah. Yeah, man, it's 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 one of those uh, challenging leadership dynamics that we we feel like often is one or the other, and in times it'll feel that way. Where, and this is so I'm a parent. I have three kids, right? And I run a business. Yeah. And there's moments where the people pleasing side of me will want to bend at a place I shouldn't bend, or want me to overlook something that I really shouldn't overlook, right? And so you have to be willing to, like you said, to be temporarily disliked even though you're doing the best thing for them or for the company. 
Yet sometimes people swing the opposite way and they kind of callous their hearts to people and say like, it doesn't matter if you like me, you know, it's all about this. It's like, well, no, in the long term, like you said, I want to be developing trust. I want to be developing care that you care for me. I care for you. Yet I can do that in a loving way and still hold standards for the company values that we don't flex on priorities that, you know, for the, for the customer, things like that. Is that, is that kind of what you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's a, it, it, it is, it, it is a great challenge for personal growth as yeah. a leader to be thinking about these things and figuring out the, the, you know, how, how you balance those things. Yeah. I hate upsetting people. I don't know which side of the spectrum you fall on, <laughs> but I just me, me being vulnerable with you. Like that's my growth area is being okay when someone's upset with me. Yeah. Whereas other people have to learn to care. So it's like a spectrum, right? Other people have to learn to care when people are upset with them. I have to learn to kind of distance myself a little bit and be like, it's all right. Not everybody has to like me all the time. Not even, you know, that kind of thing. Where are you on that spectrum? I'm the bad cop for sure. <laughs> you you so can my, do that easier. My business partner's the good cop. I'm the bad cop. <laughs> so that's, 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 that's how it goes. But that's great. I, I think related to that, it's actually, so it's interesting. My business partner used to work at AOL and he had a manager who he said was a really good manager. And I think that's the thing is like, you, you look for precedent examples of like how you can do this through yeah. yourself, meeting people that have done a good job doing what you're trying to do. And he was like, yeah, my manager really liked this book. It's called It's Your Ship. It's written by a guy who's really, you know, uh, noteworthy and respected, um, you know, leader in the Navy, he ran this ship. And one of the things he talks about is exactly what I was talking about earlier. And I think that's one of the ways that I try to think about it is like, so he, he made a, uh, you know, he would set rules that were black and white, you know, so when they docked in port at certain visiting cities, it had a, you know, uh, like a, a sober, you know, ship, hey, you don't drink alcohol, if you're going to be on this ship. And the reputation that he started building for the ship, it was, it was the best ship in the Navy. So he said, hey, you, you don't drink alcohol. If you drink alcohol when we're ported somewhere, you're not on the ship anymore. Yeah. And that way you don't have to have those hard conversations because if someone breaks the rules, that's it. You know, we had the conversation. I let you know. I don't need to let you know all the time. You know the expectations. Yeah. And I think related to that, certain people's job descriptions say, hey, this is what we need of you. This is the expectation. And then if it's not getting done, then we say, Hey, you know, remember when we had this conversation, this conversation, you know, this is kind of what falls in your territory. So yeah, we need that. What would be an example in your business of something that would be close to that non-negotiable or maybe is that non-negotiable? Like we told you once, this is something we just, it's the quickest way to get fired. You know, like what's the quickest way to get fired if someone's working for you? Well, I think that the, the best, probably easiest, like job description example to, to take, I guess, at our company is the, the entry level uh, administrative position of answering the phones and being a receptionist here. So like we have a really big marketing budget and we pay for leads and we get the phone to ring. So when someone calls into the office, you know, we're a sales and marketing organization. So that phone needs to be answered because likely it's someone who needs a roof or they need roofing work. Yeah. The expectation is that if someone calls uh, and you are on phones that you need to be available during your shift to answer the phones, you need to be in the seat to answer the phones. And additionally, if someone contacts us by email and wants to book an appointment, 
the person needs to be entered into the CRM within 15 minutes of making contact to the company. Wow. That's, that's the expectation. Yeah. Super clear. Yeah. And, and for that? us, it was like, once we, once we set that, it's like, the thing is like, if you don't want to do the, the responsibilities, then this is probably not a fit because that that's what the company needs. And if you do want this job, that is the, that's the expectation. I, I, I personally, you know, other things related to things that I need out of you, if you're doing the things that I need, then, then it, it, it it'll probably work, you know? Yeah. I love that. Now, when you look out, when you kind of step out, we'll kind of keep taking this bird's eye view over kind of big topics. As you look at how successful you guys have been this early and how quickly you've grown, what are a few of the things that you would attribute to that success? Figuring out the marketing is huge. Uh, I mean, if you run a sales and marketing organization, you know, you're selling some widget, you need to get the phone to ring. Uh, You need to get prospects in the door and then you need to have some sort of sales program that sees it through you know get the phones to ring and then figure out a sale process that works i mean i'm a huge proponent of a crm i think if you're going to do a lot of transaction volume if you don't have a crm go get a crm immediately uh decision on what crm to use depending on your your, uh, your industry or the product that you sell is a very important decision. We spend a lot of time researching and figuring out which one we, we want to use. Um, but I think that for us, like the, 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 the whole, one of the whole reasons that we made the ink list, I mean, you can attribute it to a lot of things, but I, I would say it's a combo of getting the phones to ring. So figuring out how to get the marketing and how to get good value for getting the phone to ring. I don't want to pay too much because it, it might not be worth it to go yeah. sell if I'm paying too much for a lead. Having a good sales program. So, hey, once you bring that lead in, how do you run them through your sales cycle so that you can get a quality proposal in front of them, you know, professional, you know, presentation. Um, and then I think that the back end of that is trying, you do want to make every customer happy. So might not be my job to make every employee uh, feel good all the time, but it is my job to make sure that every customer feels good all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. If you could give, if you could give a Ted talk on marketing, right? So you figured some stuff out. I know no one has it all figured out, but right. That's something you've had to figure out for your business. So many people listening, myself included, had to go on a journey to, to figure out how the hell does marketing actually work, right? Uh, what, would, what would be the one or two biggest points you would share with, with other people about what you've figured out about marketing? Well, I think rolling it back even further than like, hey, let's talk about Facebook ads or, you know, SEO or, uh, or you know, grassroots like direct mail, whatever have you, you know, all the different buckets of marketing, a lot of stuff has already been done before, you know, if I, I, I would like to think that maybe if I keep having a business career, maybe one day I'll do something incredibly innovative and, uh, and have a product that is <laughs> no competitors, you know, brilliant product that makes true blue sense. ocean. Yeah. Yeah. But, but I think that in, in a lot of products and for a lot of business owners, there's already people in your space, um, that are doing it. And, there is probably a history of 
proven kind of information on what works for us, particularly our product, the way we go to market with it is very specific to what we're trying to do. We are a roofer that is in a very specific geography. So we're in Baltimore and not only just like, are we in Baltimore city, but like every, the majority of houses that we serve are in the town of Baltimore. It's not like Mm. cut up in 10 different towns. Okay. So basically what we're trying to do is we're trying to own all the Google, all the social media related to people that want to find roofers that are in the township of Baltimore. So Got that's it. a huge piece for us. But that that is really specific to our product because people that want a roof, what, what's the, what, how are most people going to go find a roofer? They're probably going to go to Google and type in, hey, roofer Baltimore. Yeah. Uh, you know, related to your guys' product, it, it's probably a very different go-to-market strategy. So I would say if you're trying to figure out how to market, you know, calling other people that run similar businesses that you think are very successful businesses that are non-competitive businesses. So maybe yeah. someone I'm in Baltimore, someone in Florida, someone in Minnesota, someone in, you know, uh, like Boston. Uh, you know, how do you go to market? And I I think informational interviews like that to get information from people that have done it and succeeded. So huge. God, that is brilliant advice. It makes me think of the kind of the old axiom success leaves clues. Right. And so it's like, all right, other people's success has left clues. If you're willing to investigate and, and look, you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You could contextualize it. There's always contextualization where it's not apples for apples all the time, but I could take some of the major principles and apply them over here. I want to ask you a similar follow-up question. What would be the easiest way to waste marketing dollars? Ooh, man. Um, I mean, you, you, want to, you want to do your homework to figure out what is going to work. I mean, ultimately, the reason you're spending money on marketing is to bring in sales. So if you're doing some marketing campaign that is not – contributing. I mean, sometimes it's very hard. If you're running a lot of different marketing, it's very hard to track what people call KPIs, which are uh, key performance indicators. So, you know, if people have a big budget, the best scenario is that you can basically track like, Hey, if I'm running Facebook ads, you create a landing page where it goes to that landing page and then it goes to your website and you can say, Hey, you know, we spent this much on Facebook and we can directly tell the funnel where people came in. If you can figure out KPIs for every single marketing budget and like like uh, campaign that you're running, that's the ideal scenario because then you can actually tell, hey, how much am I actually paying for a lead? Yeah, I find that that's actually like very difficult thing to do. I mean, one one thing that I'll give you an example of is like we just rebranded and we hired a graphic design company to do a new color scheme, a new logo, new gear. And one of the main things that was the biggest investment is that we paid to have our whole fleet of vehicles rewrapped. Okay. The rewrapping, I, I don't, I can't track the key performance indicator that said right. hey, how many roofs were selling related to it. But what yeah. I can tell you is that when I drive down the street, if I go drive around Baltimore city for eight hours, I see our truck probably five times in mm. you know, different trucks that are part of the fleet. If that's happening for me, definitely happening for other people. So they might not be picking up the phone, but we're, we're, we're out there being. Yeah. Seen. Brand recognition is going up, which is huge. 
Yeah, but I would say, so like biggest waste of marketing dollars. I mean, I'm not, a, I mean, I think you have to have a mixed campaign. I used to think that you could do like one thing, you know, I think in some ways, some products you can do that. But I think that if you're trying to grow a business and really scale and get significant revenue, significant staff count and significant volume of your product, you can't be content with one way to go to market. It also isn't diversified enough where like if something happened to that channel, you'd be in trouble with getting people to phone in. So for us, like that's been a main thing for us in our growth trajectory right now is we're trying to be more of a big boy. And with that, we've opened up the gates on a lot of different marketing channels because we want a mixed campaign because it's going to get higher volume for us. What do you mean by a mixed campaign? doing all the stuff so yeah. so the, the 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 vans out there the facebook ads the youtube channel like you're just going from different mediums and different sources is that what you mean yeah so like i mean when we first started you know uh we we would do like constant contact emails and we would do some google performance stuff like seo and adwords and that was pretty much it and then we would go to like facebook neighbors groups and be like People are always like, hey, who's got a roofer? And that's free for us to just be like, hey, we're a roofer. Yeah. Um, and then basically what we've realized is we are very interested in not being a, you know, one, two, three, four million dollar company. We want to be a 10, 20 million dollar company as we grow. And so with the proceeds that we're earning as a business, a lot of it is going back into marketing so that we can, you know, we might not acquire a lead for, for, for like the same rate that we really liked with some of these early kind of investments that were cheaper or free. Sure. But with it, we were trying to get our brand out there and spend more on marketing so that we can, so that we can scale faster. Clients. And so we're doing, you know, 10, 15 different platforms that most of them are paid, you know, yeah. yeah, I call it a campaign. So if you're on Facebook ads, you know, we're running that campaign. It's got its own kind of uh, method that we're going to roll out over 12 months and see, yeah. you know, the Google and, and everything else. Why do you feel like, uh, so let me back that question up. Um, there are other roofers in town, right? Yet you're sitting on this podcast with me. What do you think? I'm not asking you to shit on anybody, but basically like what's the competitive advantage? What do you think that you guys have done well that has maybe differentiated what you're doing uh, than the average person out there leading a roofing business, as an example? Yeah, so I think roofing is extremely competitive. It's, it's really interesting. I have a friend that's a high school buddy, and he works for a venture capital firm, and they literally source businesses that are very small uh -huh. that they then try to scale up. And someone asked him, they're like, what's the perfect business uh, that you would want to acquire? And I was like, oh, I want to hear this question. This is over at dinner. And he was like, one that has no competition. And I was like, oh, wow. Okay. Not He's mine. Like, hey, yeah, 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 exactly. I was like, that's, yeah, it's not us. Um, we, we have a lot of competition. Um, but I think that uh, what, what is the differentiating factor for us? Um, I think that people in our market are looking for a relatable, trustworthy contractor that's involved in the community that understands the people of Baltimore city 
and is trying to offer a premium service for a much needed good that, that, that a lot of people need. Yeah. So, you know, flat roofs, there's a lot of like, we, we call them in contracting, like fly by night companies where, you know, maybe they take a deposit check and run with it, or they build you something that wasn't on the contract, you know, like a bait and switch. And I think that having in contracting, there's a big fear of, of people that, that aren't trustworthy. So, you know, on our social media, like showing all of our dogs, you know, celebrating people in the office, celebrating birthdays, coming out to customers, the houses at the end of projects and taking a photo with them, you know, mm. doing all these things to be known as an incredibly reputable company. And that's one of the things I go back to is like making sure that every customer is happy. It, it gets hard when you have a ton of customers. Like last year, we had over a thousand new customers that, that, that work with us. So it gets hard to continually deliver on that, but we always are trying to deliver at the highest level. And if people ha have issues where they need us to come back or fix something, we always want to be extremely generous with that so that as we leave our wake, our web of people that have experiences with us, it starts to build this reputation that's, that's a very known quantity. Wow. Super cool. It makes me think, uh, and I'm surprised I haven't thought about this earlier, but my dad ran a commercial roofing company uh, that he started that did flat roofs in Atlanta. Uh, it was oh, on wow. the, yeah, it was on the commercial side, not on the residential side. Uh, but I remember asking him one year, I was like, Dad, I know you're not the biggest company, but like he got the, the contract when they were expanding the Atlanta airport. He got the contract when, for the flat roofs in the Georgia Dome, things like that. And I was like, how are you getting these? these deals. I know you're not as big as some of those people. And he said the same thing. He's like over however many years at that point he'd been in business. He's like, people know if I give them a price, it's accurate. And that I will quality work. He had won like national awards every year for quality of work. And he's like, you can't underestimate in my line of business, how far trust will go. Right. Oh, yeah. So He's like, I'll win bids. Even if I'm not the lowest bidder, he's like, everybody's racing to the bottom and they'll still pick me because they know no hidden costs are coming in. Like if we make a mistake, we'll go fix it. Mike's an honest guy. Like he'll get the job done and get it job, you know, get it right kind of thing. And that lesson just stuck with me. Like, man, how far can something that we could overlook like that go like integrity and trust and uh, those kinds of things in the customer's mind. Right. Yeah. And I think that for, for a lot of business owners that are in a competitive industry, we we're pretty transparent with customers that, Hey, we're grateful for every opportunity, but if it's not the right fit in terms of like our price or, or you wanting to work with us, yeah. it's perfectly fine. But with, uh, with, you know, the decision to engage us to work on your project, I think there's a known uh, quantity that you're getting here, which is that, and what we say to customers is that we, we want to make sure that you're taken care of. Yeah. So all things equal, when you call me, I want to see you in the grocery store and I want to make sure that if you hired us, you're taken care of. Super cool. Uh, now I'm curious at this point, just so I know the context where we're talking about, how big is the team now that, that you've assembled there at 412? Oh man. I mean, I'm, relatively good with names and I, I i don't know everyone's name at this point so it has gotten pretty big um i mean we probably have we got a full-time deck crew we got a full-time uh shingle crew and then we probably have about 40 guys that are working on um the uh 
the rest of the mix. So call that maybe, you know, like 55 people in the field that are a mix of like 1099s and, and W2s. Yeah. And then in the, we've got six salespeople and then we've got myself and my business partner. And then we got about eight people in the office um, and then maybe three or four project managers. So are the eight people in the office like admin and stuff like that? Or what are they doing? So like controller accounts, receivable marketing. Uh, yeah. We got three admins and an office manager. Um, got it. So yeah. Man, you've gotten a full team here. <laughs> it's pretty, it's pretty wild. I mean, sometimes me and my business partner look at each other and we're like, holy cow, like four years ago, we were just, it was just us two and like yeah. one admin. So it's a, it's a very different uh, equation now. Yeah. So let's talk. The reason I ask is because it's, it's fascinating to me, the dynamics that begin to evolve or demand change when a business gets to a certain tipping point of people. One would be, when you can't know everybody's name anymore, right? Like at some point you're like, this has gone beyond my ability to know everyone's name. And it kind of signals a change in the business. Like, Hey, we were organic. Now it's forcing us to be a little more organized. And so you have to think a little harder about communication or values being lived out or, you know, checks and balances or whatever. Right. Uh, for you at this stage of the business, what's the most challenging part about supporting that large of a team and, investing in them and making sure quality stays up and their engagement stays up and stuff like that. What, what's that like for you? Well, I'd say two things. And I think one of the reasons that we have been able to do, I, this is kind of like for other business owners that might be listening to this. Yeah. Um, the, I think knowing your financials is paramount. Um, this was our first year where we built a budget. Um, I hired a guy who's really really savvy small business consultant paid him hourly to do kind of like a larger exercise where he built us a budget going into this year. Cool. Cause well, I think the thing that really keeps me up at night, you know, like it used to really, like if you get like an email, that's like a resignation from someone you're like, Oh, you know, like, <laughs> oh, no, like this person's leaving. And I think at this point, if, you know, obviously we're trying to retain people where we don't want that to happen, but if someone is to leave, we have enough of a base at this point where I know that the ship is going to be okay. Um, Got it. So, you know, well, related to that, I would say one thing is as you scale a business, starting to have certain people take on more responsibilities so that you as an owner don't have to micromanage and grow. So like my office manager, she's been with us for like two and a half years. I trust her tremendously. She's got a great work ethic. She also commands respect amongst all the people that work in the office. So I, we recently promoted her to an office manager. So she's now helping me to do that. Cool. Um, in the field, we've had a couple people that have kind of risen and gotten promoted to be project managers, which has been great. Um, and I think having those people that start to be the heads of departments so that you can look to them and they just, they make it happen, that, that's been vital. And then the second thing is knowing your numbers. Uh, so this budget, I, I mean, the, the, the thing that really keeps me up at night is not knowing if the economics work, okay? Because let's say you say yes to marketing over here, you say yes to truck wrap over there, you, uh, you give someone a raise, you make a hire over here. Like, do you even have enough money to do all that? Right. You, know? <laughs> yeah. you, gotta, you gotta know that. 
you got to know that because some things will come up. People will be like, Hey, I'm really valuable. I just got to, you know, I, I, I want, I want to raise. And you're like, well, I want to keep you, but do, do we have that money? Yeah. Um, and so building the budget really gave me some serious peace of mind to just know, Hey, we have the money to do X, to do Y, to do Z. Probably we don't want to do this and make that part of like an annual plan coming into the year. And doing that, I think for me, it was just like that, that was a tremendous exercise. And I think it's been a big step for us. And I would truly, I would really recommend it if certain people, if you're getting to a point where you got enough expenses, where your PL has a lot of items on it and QuickBooks, yeah. it's not just like two or three expenses a month, you know, you yep. might want to know, can you afford all that stuff? Dude, great advice. I love that. You're also at that place, like you said, where a new tier of management is coming out, right? Where you can, you and your business partner can no longer make all the decisions, oversee all the people. And so you've had to delegate to elevate, right? Um, love that. Yeah, that's not my language. That's Gino Wickman uh, from. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep, delegate to elevate. Uh, but that can be a scary thing for business owners. It can be scary to to truly delegate and actually give other people decision-making power or, you know, creative control in a certain area or whatever. Was that easy for you? Was that difficult for you? What was that transition like starting to hand over some delegation? Yeah, I think at first there was like a certain period, you know, certain functions, like, like I used to do our accounting and like to hand over the accounts receivable to someone and train them to do the bills. I was like, this needs to be dead on perfect do not wrap this up. And I think I put a lot of fear into the person that was doing that <laughs> job. But then I was like, all right, I, I have to, I mean, the way that I think about it, you know, you think about like rich dad, poor dad, the, that book, yep. other people's time, other people's money. You know, if you're really trying to make good money, growing a business, you're trying to scale it. You're going to build that by hiring people to do certain functions of the business. Because if you're doing it, you're not going to actually benefit from any of the ownership privileges of like owning a business. You know, like the, the dream is to work a little bit less and, and have the business make a little bit more money. And the way that you do that is other people's time. So hiring people to do certain things and then other people's money. So getting financing to kickstart it. So, yeah. Yeah. His, his, um, uh... His four, you know, cash flow quadrants definitely changed my life and my first my business partner's life. He's the one that really challenged me, uh, which is that I, the trap you talk you just talk so eloquently about is the trap that we can often get in. Any business owner can, where you're basically self-employed, right? That's what he called oh, it. Yeah, yeah. Self-employed. I love that analogy. That's that. That's the that is the a, a huge eye-opening thing, and I think a lot of people need to know that. Yes. So my the good example is my one of my best friends owns the gym down the road and he loves it. He's a great example of somebody that could fall into the self-employed quadrant, even though he's technically a business owner on paper, but it's because he loves the business so much. He's become integral to the business because he's doing most of the, the training, most of the, the, the group classes, the whatever, but he's been doing it for 10 years. This business is really successful and he's still working ungodly hours, missing kids, soccer games and whatever. And I came to him one day and I said, do you ever thought about scaling? Because he's got the best gym in our area. Yeah. Like, have you ever thought about scaling? He's like, no. I was like, why? He was like, that sounds terrible. I don't want more of this. And I was like, it's only because you're stuck in the business owner or in the, in the, in the self-employed quadrant. And so yeah. we started a conversation and then COVID hit. And it was the first thing that forced him 
to like be at home. And when he was at home and he actually had slept a few mornings in and he had like spent time with his family, he called me and he's like, Hey, we got to figure this shit out. Like you t- tell me yeah, what I'm doing wrong. Cause when I, when the doors open again, I'm not going back to the same way. And I was like, all right, we got to focus on your first key hire. You need one person that you can trust and train to do, start handling some of the coaching volume. And we started doing stuff from there. And now he's experiencing the benefit of being a business owner where he's plugged in when he wants to be, but he's also off hands off where he wants to be. And now he's already thinking about opening a second location. He's like, well, shoot, if I do it this way, we might as well open a location over there and I'll train someone and I'll put them in that position. I'm like, now we're talking, buddy, right? And oh, yeah. That, that whole idea. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think it, it also depends on your product in some ways. So, you know, you ask, like, what, what's the first way to, how do you start a business? For us, it was figuring out the right product. Roofing happened to be that product, particularly yeah. in Baltimore City. And I think that we, we've been lucky to pick a product that is built to scale. Okay. You know, it, we, we got all the cogs, you know, they, they, you hire for these different positions and you put them in place and it works like a machine. You know, you have someone yes. answer the phones, you have someone go run the appointments and do the sales. You, you got, you know, a man, you got people in the field that go run the jobs. And so we've been fortunate to be able to have hireable functions that are specialized and, and, and it works with the economics of the business too, because like the market rate for these positions, it works so that, so that the business can be profitable and, and do what it needs to do. So. Absolutely. Well, I think what you're saying is there's businesses that more naturally lend themselves to that. And then there's businesses where you have to be more creative, right? So sure. it's possible with anything. Yeah. Right. I, I think so. Yeah, absolutely. So like my line of work, I fell into that trap because so outside of the podcast, I run a coaching company where we do coaching for leaders, executives, managers, on, on, on engagement, high performance, that kind of stuff, right? This would be the classic business to fall into self-employed. Almost everybody I know in my line of work is self-employed. They are yeah. a one-person show, and what he would – Kiyosaki would say self-employed is where you trade time for dollars, right? Yes. So if you're not doing the work, you're not getting paid. But a business owner has set up systems and processes and people where even when they're not doing the work, they're still getting paid, Right. And that's where my business partner and I came together and started our own company because we were like, this is going to be a creative challenge, but we can figure out a way to start taking our line of work and moving it a little bit more towards a business owner uh, quadrant rather than he and I for the next 40 years of our life, right? Only making money for our family when we're showing up and putting in hours and getting dollars back from that. Does that make sense? Yeah, 100%. So we had to find some creative ways. That's my whole encouragement to anyone listening is like, I'm in an industry where you would say there's no way of getting around it. And I'm like, no, we're doing it. Like you right guys, now. You guys feel like you're, you're, you're cracking it. We're cracking it. We're not there yet, but we've, we've got noticeable measurable change where it's like, Hey, for instance, we created a course. We created a course uh, as a result for some of the companies we work with. They were saying like, Hey, we can't scale you fast enough. Like we can't pay for you to work individually with everybody. Could you take some of the main things you're teaching our people, put it in an online course, and we'll just pay you for that and give them access to that? And we were like, 100%. So we, we created a, an online course, especially for salespeople, that would be something for them to become a better high performer, right? And it's like the first time I saw a money come in that they were buying this course and I wasn't showing up live to teach it, we were like, there's one. 
Like, again, yes. it's not a million-dollar product, but it's like there is an example that wasn't there yesterday that is now bringing it in. We also built a company instead of having an individual book of business, and now I'm starting to outsource work to other coaches. So as other coaches are doing work for a company I landed, and I'm getting a percentage, of a well-deserved percentage of that, we're going, okay, there's another revenue stream that I'm not showing up doing all the client deliverables, right? And so we have just one kind of slow thing after another where we're figuring out how to have a real company versus just me being a solo consultant out in the world. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. And I'm glad that you explained that for people that are listening. I mean, that yeah, the self-employed, how being self-employed works. Yeah, basically, if you're not showing up, then you're not earning money. Yes. It would be like if you're not on the roof yourself doing the roofing, then you're not getting paid. Versus like, well, I did the hard work and I built a business and I've hired other people, so it's not free, but I am more and more be distancing myself from having to always show up just for the business to operate, right? 100%. 100%. Man, super cool. All right. I'll, I'm curious. One more question before we get into lightning rounds. Um, if, if you were to give one skill or tell an entrepreneur, here's one skill that you should develop and practice, what would that skill be? Sales. Yes, come on. All right, talk to that. Sales. You, I mean, sales is everything related to being a business owner. I think that uh, if you don't have a way to sell, then you're not going to make any money. Uh, I think building a good sales program in terms of how you want to go to market, like a good pitch deck or a good, like, kind of one, two, three way of how you run, uh, you know, a request for, for services, uh, super valuable. Um, I actually invested in six months of Sandler training. Um, Sandler is like a national organization that, uh, that does sales training. So I, uh, I, I did one of their kind of affordable courses where I, I, I paid, uh, it was like 10 grand a year to do yeah. it. I did about six months, month to month. And basically I went once every Thursday for two hours and I learned the fundamentals of Sandler. So there's, you know, there's kind of like a fundamentals where you learn all the basics of how you think about sales. And then you go into kind of, they call it uh, mastery where you go into deeper concepts of how it works and how you execute. Um, and I think that having some sort of, method for going yes. about sales is super important. And I also think that I, I would say this, like, like if we, if, if we have a kid, uh, I think that if, if, if I had a child that wanted to go into business, doing some job where you're doing sales or customer service from an early age, getting in front of people, trying to get them to buy something, that is the best experience that you could have, period. Yes. Self, starting with selling yourself, you know, which yep. will get you a job and then learning how to sell anything, you know, come on that uh, we felt that <laughs> we felt that most pointedly uh, during COVID, right? Cause all of a sudden sales are, are down. And at that point we hadn't learned how to go out and generate it. Our business had survived off of organic, right? Like just word of mouth and like, Oh, we just one customer leads to another customer and then everyone's in a hiring freeze, right? Or everyone's like in a spend freeze. And that became our mission in 2020 was to figure out, figure out sales. Cause by trade, we are coaches, right? So we know what to do once we get the work, 
It doesn't mean we know how to go and get the work ourselves. Right. And I, man, I had to overcome a lot of mental hurdles, a lot of even like emotional hurdles. Like I was thinking about sales the wrong way. I was avoidant of it for stupid reasons. And it was just an interesting journey, man. So I'm glad you said that it's been, it's been critical. Yeah. And I think you're, you're absolutely not alone. And that's one of the things I learned in doing the Sandler course and, and definitely that I felt uh, being doing sales for our business is that, you know, there is a lot of emotional, like getting a no from someone hurts. Yes. Uh, doesn't, doesn't need to uh, yeah. better learn. It's part of the process, but if you get a lot of no's, you know, then it can start to wear on you. Uh, and I think having the tools to be able to, understand that that's just part of the game, you know, and how to figuring out how to get better and how to have success. It's like that, that it's a big part of it. Super cool. So that was called Sandler trading S A N D L E R. Yep. Yep. And cool. I, I highly recommend it. I, I, we do twice a week sales meetings with our sales reps. So once on Monday morning, once on Thursday afternoons, and a lot of the psychology and process that we borrow from is Sandler driven. Sweet. Always love uh, tested and tried stuff on the podcast that those listening can go and at least research for themselves. So check that out if that's something that you guys are, are wanting to invest in and learn for you or your team as well. It sounds like this went really well uh, for Sam. So, all right, buddy, I'm on your birthday. I don't want to take up too much more of your time. Uh, I want to ask you our five lightning, five lightning round questions, and then uh, it's off for whatever you got planned for the rest of the day. Hopefully some celebrations are involved. Question number one, if you could ingrain one message into your entire organization, what would that question be? Or sorry, what would that statement be? Man, um, I, I mean, I, I, one of my main, I, I think taking care of the customer is, is probably the top you know um i'm gonna go with that you know? cool make sure that our customers feel taken care of cool yeah i'm, I'm laughing because uh, a friend and advisor of mine used to be a cfo at atlassian and he was talking about one of the biggest values he had was that they had as a company was never fuck the customer and <laughs> he was like we made it that that kind of vulgar for a reason like we wanted people to know like how important this is like never screw over the customer always take yeah. care of them um yeah. and i just i just laugh every time i think about it so oh yeah no that, i think that's great i mean uh yeah whatever you need to do to build it into the fabric but yeah i think if i told anyone one thing that's, that's yeah that's take care of the customer i love that all right number two what is the single best advice you've ever gotten about growing your business and what was the worst oh man um <laughs> that's a hard one yeah um, what's been actually helpful for you in terms of maybe a guiding philosophy or way of thinking about growing your business well i think one thing that i see a lot on like these influencers on social media is that if you're trying to grow a business you're trying to play in the the, the higher ranks that you shouldn't take advice from people that are not doing that you should take advice from people that are are doing that because uh, they know and I think, I think that's good advice. Uh, it's, it's pretty to the point, but I, uh, I, I think it makes sense. Um, and I think, uh, so, so we'll, we'll log that on bad advice. Um, and then good advice. <laughs> yeah. 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 Good advice. Or at least my, but my, for me, I think a breakthrough for our business 
if you're starting a business, figure out your product, you know, uh, what, what it, I think that for me, like business is a lifestyle thing. And I think that I wanted a product that was suited my lifestyle, like the life that I'm trying to have. And I particularly like the product that we picked because it works for what I'm trying to build. Love it. Question number three, what causes you the most worry or stress leading your organization? When the money doesn't work. <laughs> Tell me, the, what do you mean by that? Like if we have a month where, you know, the money doesn't look right and you're looking at it, you're like, oh man, what's going on? If, yeah. uh, I got to figure that out, you know, within 24 to 48 hours. Um, that's, that's something that, that will keep me up at night. I think the other thing too is staff, uh, which I'm obviously something that I'm talking about working on, you know, but like, uh, trying to make sure that people feel appreciated and that you're running a, a company that's got quality people that, that are driving towards it. And I think if you have ruffles in that, uh, th those are things that, that irk me and I want to, want to solve those. Yeah. Yeah. Love that. Uh, what is your current BHAG, your big, hairy, audacious goal for the company? Uh, I want to be a $10 million company in revenue. That's, that's one of the things that I want. The, the last 12 months we've done about 6 million in revenue, uh, run rate. So we, when we hit the ink list, I think we had done just over four. So okay. I want to be a $10 million company. That's, that's our big goal. I think uh, if we can do it in the next three years, that seems realistic. And, um, and I think it would be fantastic to hit that. Heck yeah. All right. Number five is our fun and creative question. So answer it however you want. If you could hop into a DeLorean, go back to the past and tell yourself one thing out the driver's side window, when would you go back and what would you tell your younger self? Oh man. Oh man. Uh, I would probably go talk to myself fresh out of college. I think uh, maybe <laughs> I definitely wouldn't want to visit myself in middle school. I don't think there's anything. <laughs> <laughs> nothing we can do for that guy. <laughs> yeah, nothing, nothing beyond saving. <laughs> um, I, I honestly, I, I, I might just that I, I might just go back to an, a very early version of myself and just tell myself to be kind to people. I think mm. that that's that that's an important life lesson. I think that uh, also my first job out of college nearly killed me, hated it. And I, I think I would have gone back to myself and said, Hey, you know, stick it out. This is going to be to your benefit, learn, you know, work it. And, uh, and, you know, this is part of the, the, the trajectory. Yeah. Yeah. Love it. Well, buddy, this has been a fantastic conversation. We've been honored to have you on the podcast. It's exciting to see not only what you're building, but how you're doing it, and especially the impact that it's having in your city of Baltimore, uh, which is just super cool, man. You're, you're, you're kicking ass at a, at a young age already. And um, man, it's gonna be fun to watch where you and the company go from here. So thank you for making time on your birthday to be with us today. Awesome, Drew. I really appreciate it. This is great. Uh, I've done a couple of these and this was this one of my most fun ones. So I really appreciate it. Heck yeah, I'll take it. I'll take it, man. Uh, we'll, we'll have to have you back on sometime. We can keep the conversation rolling. Cool. That would be fantastic. I'm always down. All right. Thank you, buddy. Founders, thanks for listening. We hope you enjoyed it. 
Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and hop into our monthly founder email so we can ensure you stay on the edge of peak performance and massive business results.